Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Let's talk about PG&E, the California utility. The shares, as Greg Jarrett just mentioned, higher right now by more than 39%. Joining us here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios to lend his expertise is Kit Connolich. He is our senior industry analyst for the world of utilities. Kit, thank you very much for being here. Total liabilities for PG&E, what kind of number are we talking about? 25, 30 billion? I think that's the right range from last year plus this year. That's a lot of money. That's more money, twice as much money as the invested equity in PG&E, twice as much as the annual revenues for PG&E. So it, you know, when you look at it that way, you get a sense of just, you know, how you're between a rock and a hard place when you're saying they have to pay all of this if well, they did. Well, so let's just take a step back. What is PG&E's responsibility in the fires that are currently ravaging California? Uh, in California, they have this rule called inverse condemnation, and the courts have held that if a utility uh, equipment is in any way involved in a fire, that the utility is totally responsible for all the damages in the fire. They can't argue that somebody else had partial responsibility or some homeowner should have done this or some highway department should have done that. They just have to pay it all. So that's been the, the real crunch that makes the California situation uh, different than a hurricane in Florida, for example, where there's a long history of people saying, Obviously, the utility didn't cause this, so you know we have to help them pay it back. The California legislature has a voice in all of this, right? That's right. The California legislature, the governor, uh, the regulatory commission. So all, those are really kind of the three major uh, state folks that are going to decide how this works out. And the legislature has already done something uh, where they've indicated that the regulators are supposed to consider whether, basically whether a utility is going to go bankrupt if it pays all of the liabilities that might be assigned to it. So the legislature has said, hey, regulators, uh, you know, don't, you have to pass off some of the of, of the liabilities or these guys uh, can't survive financially. And yesterday we saw the, the head regulator in California reemphasizing that point and that gave stockholders a kind of new lease on life. And, and bondholders as well for, and bondholders. Uh, of PG&E with the bonds surging in price. I have to wonder, PG&E knows that it has California hostage here. It is its biggest utility, biggest energy provider. So, you know, they're not going to be allowed to fail. The fact that they drew down their entire credit line and basically said, all right, we're at risk of bankruptcy now, forced their hand, no? Well, I think uh, it's a good question whether they're they're that tough and cynical to be playing it that way you know they're they're not they're not hedge fund guys right you know they're not necessarily uh they're kind of hopefully running it for the long term and also the reality is you know there's an example of 
Well, if, if they're running it as for the long term, yeah. I, I want to come in there because sure. if they are, they're not doing a very good job. <laughs> and what uh, does this mean in terms of what sort of taxpayers are on the hook for in California if they're not going to be allowed to fail? They're, they're struggling for sure. But look, at, at the end of the day, uh, even if it's the utility's fault, I mean, even if they did something drastically wrong, there's a couple of realities that California has to deal with. One is uh, the people who got burned out have to get compensated in some way. So that could be in the multiple billions of dollars. The other is you have to sooner or later have a financially viable utility. So to say, even if you say it's their fault to say, well, they have to pay 20 or $30 billion doesn't compute because then you don't have a utility that can continue to operate. Kit, if you just for the sake of argument, put aside all of the inverse condemnation liabilities, the potential 15, 20 billion, 25 billion, whatever it is. What's the financial operation of PG&E like? Well, aside from that, the financial operation is fine. Uh, but you know, keep in mind, regulated utilities are entirely the creatures of the regulators. Correct. So th their profitability, their cash flow, is completely dependent on what the regulators say it is. So if the regulators raise rates, then their earnings and cash flow go up. If they cut rates, they go down. If the regulators say you don't have to pay these apparent liabilities, then you don't. If you do. So, so when people say, well, what's the company really worth aside from all of this? It completely, you know, it completely depends on what happens with the regulators and whether they want to let it go bankrupt or not. That, that's the end, of the, the end of the day, what you have. And right now, regulators are saying, we don't want you to go bankrupt. Kit Connellidge, thank you so much for being with us. Kit Connellidge is Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. PG&E has more than $22 billion of debt. Their prices on those bonds are rising today. Although, Pam, I do have to wonder going forward if perhaps bond investors are not going to be as forgiving with some of these companies that can whip them around uh, with different proclamations uh, if there is a situation like this that occurs. Brexit has been on the brink for a long time, but things seem to be heating up with the potential deal collapsing. Theresa May now, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, trying to retain her control over uh, Parliament and get this sort of deal through before the deadline. Joining us now, Brendan Brown, Chief Economist and Head of Economic Research at Mitsubishi UFJ Securities, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Brendan, can we just talk about what the pound is currently pricing in? What scenario are markets saying seems most likely right now? There are two scenarios, and I think the main scenario that's being priced in is that somehow this appeasement deal is going to get through, and most likely it'll get through because there'll be some cross of the, crossing of the aisle support from the Labour Party um, to support the deal despite the Brexit opposition with Brexiteer opposition within the Conservative Party. And why Labour would support the deal is that if the Conservatives go along with this, they are at major risk of losing a lot of their nationalist working class support and this would probably sink the Conservative Party for the next generation so Labour would really do 
well out of that. And in many ways, I think what the pound is pricing in is the spectre of a far-left government under Mr. Corbyn. Now, there is a, there is a better scenario, uh, scenario number two, where a Churchillian-type figure, maybe that's an exaggeration, emerges in, the, in some sort of leadership challenge in the next few weeks, says that enough is enough, the Europeans have treated us terribly. They haven't really sat down in good faith and negotiated. And the best we can do is reach some interim deal for the next year, and then we're away out, out, and um, under WTO rules. And that m- would salvage the Conservative Party, possibly r- rally a lot of nationalist support, and they may even win a general election one year down the road. Well, the French uh, finance minister said earlier today that, uh, well, he said that. British politicians who campaigned for Brexit, he described them, quote, as liars. Does that help Theresa May actually reach an agreement with her own party as well as with Parliament? Absolutely not. But if you ask me what the main failure in the whole May strategy has been, it has been right from the start, not doing everything possible to get a U.S. deal. Because once they realized that the Europeans were going to be totally obdurate as they have been in Germany and France, the obvious strategy was to take the advantage of an anti-German president of the United States, anti-EU, pro-British, to do a deal and fundamentally align Britain with all American interests and policies in the Middle East and everywhere else. And May has totally failed to do that. Instead, you, in fact, she's gone for the, the opposite. She's been backing um, Merkel on Iran and all these other issues as if purposely to annoy President Trump. So I want to shift focus from Europe to the United States, because what's moving markets today in, in large part is uh, Fed Vice Chair Rich Clarida, his comments about getting to neutral and the possibility of perhaps raising rates less frequently than previously thought because of some of the headwinds to growth and the fact that you are seeing a little bit of slowing. Given that you just wrote this book, The Case Against 2% Inflation, do you think that the Fed needs to slow down now and not hike very much at all to get to neutral in order to sort of normalize? Or do you think that there's still room to run? Well, let me say one or two things. Nobody knows what neutral interest rates, let alone Federal Reserve officials. And secondly, nobody knows where we are in the business cycle. If, if you study any 50 or 100 year period or 20 year period, the record of Federal Reserve fine tuning and knowing exactly where we are in the business cycle is appalling. And probably at the moment, with a cheerleader for Trump economics as the chief of the Fed, he's probably tending to exaggerate the strength of the economy. I mean, my view is that the the growth cycle upturn, which started in the early 2016 in the U.S. and globally under the influence of radically easy monetary policy, has become tired. And most likely the global growth slowdown outside the United States has now been joined by the United States. That is a dangerous period because growth cycle slowdowns do sometimes go into recessions and sometimes do bring about asset deflation. So we are at a dangerous moment. I just want to note that your new book is entitled The Case Against 2% Inflation from Negative Interest Rates to a 21st Century Gold Standard. Do you see that happening? Well, a century is a long time in 21st century. We have some time, right. (laughs) what, what What I do think is that the 2% inflation standard is going to 
blow apart sooner than most people think, even although there's not any effective political opposition to it. And it's probably going to blow apart because in this global slow th- global slow slowdown, inflation everywhere is going to be well below target, including in the United States. I think the next phase of monetary development is going to be currency war. There's going to be monetary a new period of monetary chaos and the way the U.S. will react to a global global slowdown is going to be stepping up quite justifiably um, action against currency manipulators in Europe, Japan and China. We look forward to you in the future guiding us through those issues. Thank you very much, Dr. Brendan Brown. He is the chief economist and head of economic research for Mitsubishi UFJ Securities. He's also the author of The Case Against 2% Inflation from Negative Interest Rates to a 21st Century Gold Standard. We have an expert in the world of food, Adnan Durrani. He is the founder and the chief executive of Saffron Road, and he has a diverse and storied list of experiences in the food industry. For example, he managed to sell what was at the time the second largest bottled water company in the Northeast. It was acquired by Cot Beverages. I'm speaking about Vermont Pure and Crystal Rock, and he joins us here in studio. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Tell us a little bit about halal food and saffron foods and how this all came together. Give us a little of your history. Sure. So uh, I'm kind of, a, I guess, both a serial immigrant and a serial entrepreneur. Uh, and this started with the idea of the Silk Road, which was a, you know went all the way from Italy to Asia and celebrated 100 different cultures on that road. And so we thought, let's create a journey. Let's create a brand around rural cuisines where they can be used as an enlightenment tool to bring together people of different faiths, different ethnicities, different cultures, and celebrate their cuisines. And so that Zafran was the main spice used on the Zafran Road. So that's how it really came together as kind of a social model. And halal food, you know, is... Is, is a huge business outside U.S. It's a $2 trillion industry outside U.S. And halal has to do with not only how was it harvested, but how were the animals treated while they were living. It's very similar to kosher. But we knew that there was a very strong demographic in U.S. for that, and that's why we launched that. But that's not our core consumer necessarily. It's one of the elements of our brand. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. When I think of Saffron Road, I think of major supermarkets. I think of Whole Foods. I think of you know aisles where it's not just people who are looking for halal food. But they're looking for Middle Eastern food. They're looking for Indian food. So can you talk a little bit about your distribution, your expansion, especially now as there's a more nationalistic tone in the United States? Very good question, Lisa. Yes, we started out obviously serving the halal community, which is around 6 or 8 million American Muslims, very educated. It's not like you have in Europe, 70% higher education than the average American as well as very high income. So it's, it's really, a, a, when you think about your technology engineers and all of that, that's really the demographic that's here. So that's a marketer's dream, right? But 85% of our consumers are not even halal consumers. They're consumers that are part of the natural organic movement or what we call NASH, natural organic, sustainable, healthy living lifestyle. Today, food, in our opinion, especially millennials who are about 60 or 70% of our demographic, look at food tribes. And so we're part of this natural organic food tribe. And this is my fourth food company in the natural organic sector. One of them was Stonyfield Farms Yogurt. I mean, I've for 30 years been devoted to businesses that are are socially responsible to the environment. And so we say journey to better. And what we mean by that is journey to better 
ethical values around food, journey that's better for the farmers, journey that's better for the, the uh, animals, the livestock, and journey that's better for the food system that brings you really healthy food. So since that's our starting point, we were able to distribute nationally. We're in 20,000 stores all over the country, all 50 states. We're the only national halal brand as well. Uh, but that's because of our standards. Uh, you know, Whole Foods was our initial partner. We were the first uh, non-GMO verified frozen entree in the world. We were the first certified humane entree in the world. So what we were doing was really trying to lift and elevate the ethical values around food that's offered in the supermarkets today. There are many legacy brands that are having trouble in the food aisle and in the what I would call the frozen case, the frozen aisle, sure. because frozen food, it doesn't, it gets a bad rap, but you've been very successful in that line with your entrees, with your bowls, you make it very clear, no antibiotics ever. How's that business doing? And tell us how yours is different than many of the well-known legacy brands. Sure. Um, that's a very good point, Ben. I mean, what's happened in the food industry, and having been in this industry 30 years, I never thought I'd see this happen in my entire lifetime. But last year, Boston Consulting Group and IRI put out a study that said that 46% of the growth of the $800 billion food and beverage industry is coming from small brands. That was a shocker. That was a, a wake-up call. It was a wow moment, I think, for the big CPGs. They're not succeeding because they haven't pivoted into this category in a mindful, authentic way. Uh, what we do is we don't just, you know, we don't just come up with these certifications as a marketing uh, element, although it, it's a smart marketing element if you're authentic to it, it's because that's, that's our value system. And so millennials today are very viral, they go online, they check out everything about the brand, they check out everything about the products. So you have to be bulletproof in terms of transparency, which a lot of big CPGs aren't. Uh, we've been able to disrupt and become a modern challenger brand. We single-handedly lifted whole food sales in frozen natural organic for the last four years, about 15, 20% a year. Um, and most of the other brands were suffering terribly. Now, a lot of the big brands, the CPGs have started to pivot into this category. And they're CPG, getting- consumer package. Consumer packaged goods companies have started to really pivot into this category in a, in a good way. And they are cleaning up their products. That's part of our mission, right? Is to really, it's also to bring them along, you know, to, to really change the food system because a lot of what they're looking at is through the rearview mirror. We keep looking forward how to completely lift our standards every year. You know, when you talk about being sustainable, I think about some of the effects of climate change that we've seen recently. Has there been anything yet that has forced you to change your supply chains as a result to uh, as a result of uh, change in, in weather? Uh, absolutely. We're always looking for partners, uh, whether it's the farms we source from or whether it's the particular vendors that we choose that are dedicated to the same values that we're dedicated to. So, for example, uh, we, we have a line of very successful organic snacks, chickpea snacks. Uh, we're the only ones that are fair trade certified. We have a dark chocolate and dark chocolate chai. I brought some for you and uh, Pim to, to uh, try, to sample. Uh, we also uh, look very carefully at what are their standards around uh, uh, labor, what are their standards in their facilities, and we do audits on them. So we're very careful with that. We also think that, you know, we, we've been changing our packaging, and there's a big movement towards more environmental packaging as well. Is the, is the halal food more expensive? Because we talk about organic food being more expensive than non-organic food. Is there a real price point difference? Halal is not quite there yet because kosher is. Um, because when the kosher certifiers and the kashrut uh, scholars came here, they did a wise thing 40, 50 years ago. They set some standards. Right now, there's a lot of different standards. I think 
Halal is still in early stages, even though it's a pretty huge market. Um, so I think once they set those standards, we'll start to see the price movement upward. But right now, there's a slight premium. It's not really that significant. The more significant is really the natural organic sustainability. Thank you so much for being with us. Really uh, a pleasure having you. Adnan Durrani, founder and chief executive of Saffron Road, longtime entrepreneur and, uh, and traveler. And, and really, uh, the flavor is getting into stores around the country and around the world. Pim, uh, definitely interesting uh, to sort of see how, even if there is sort of more protectionist rhetoric, there is a ex more expansive taste for different cultural foods. So that's something that uh, is sort of a uniting factor. Topic Brexit. UK Prime Minister Theresa May has just named the pro-Brexit Stephen Barclay as her new Brexit secretary. He, his remit will be to concentrate on preparing legislation while talks between the European Union and the United Kingdom will be handled by May's team in her Downing Street office. Now, this basically strips the Brexit department of a key part of its job. Here to tell us more about what's going on with Brexit is Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor. Therese, a pleasure to have you with us, coming to us from London. Your most recent column about Brexit says the problem isn't Theresa May, it's Brexit. What do you mean? Well, it's not to say that Theresa May hasn't made uh, a whole lot of mistakes in the last two years since uh, triggering uh, well, year and a half since since triggering uh, Article 50, but you know the 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 key problem here is that Britain has to make some pretty big compromises if it wants both access to EU markets and the um, you know freedom from EU rules and institutions. It really can't have both. Now May's mistake was sort of telling both Remainers and Leavers that they could have mostly what they wanted and not quite being clear with them that that there would be um, some tough decisions decisions to be made. And now, you know, the time has run out. She's got a deal back from Brussels. Everyone is upset about it. Yes, everybody is upset about it. Does that mean it's a good deal? Um, I, I don't think I don't think anyone can really call it a good deal. What you, what we could say about it is it's probably the best she's going to get. And it is far preferable uh, to have this deal than to have no deal at all, because no deal at all um, is, you know, it's a disaster for the UK economy. It literally means, you know, planes don't take off unless um, there are some very last, you know, minute agreements made. It, it means, you know, stockpiling medicines. Um, it's a whole lot of uncertainty and a, and a whole lot of grief. So, you know, this is this is the deal the EU is offering. Uh, they don't want to talk any further about it. There may be some very marginal concessions left to be wrung out. Some in May's cabinet are now working to see if they can go and try to salvage this in a way they could sell it to Parliament. But this is pretty much as good as it gets for her now. And the question is, can she sell it to her parliament? Based on your reporting and your conversations with people close to the whole Brexit negotiations, do you believe that Brexit is being used as a political weapon against the prime minister? And that, as you said earlier, this is as good as it gets. And she was handed a pretty lousy hand of cards to play. She did not call the Brexit uh, referendum, did she? 
No, and in fact, she was a Remain supporter. She wasn't an enthusiastic Remain supporter. But once that vote um, you know, was decided, it went 52-48 for leave, and she became prime minister, she said, I'm going to deliver the best Brexit I can. I mean, there's no doubt this is political. Dominique Robb, her Brexit secretary, resigned, having taken the job to negotiate the deal, having stayed on while that deal was being negotiated, having accepted while she presented it to cabinet. And, you know, there are a lot of people out there think, well, you know, he he resigned thinking that it's not going to go through parliament and he wants to be party leader. So there are political machinations mixing with this huge, you know, generational historical uh, decision change that Britain is going through. So it's it's very hard to separate uh, the two. And, and it, it's, you know, kind of what complicates the whole thing. British public opinion. Give us a window on to what the British population thinks. Okay, so the public opinion seems to have been shifting recently. And there was a poll out recently that showed an eight-point shift toward remaining. So if you were to have a straight-in-out vote right now, uh, many people think that it would go the opposite way and maybe by a larger margin than 5248. The problem with that is you don't really know what people are going to do until you call a vote and you have a campaign. And a lot there's a growing sort of chorus of voices saying, let's have a second vote. But what do you ask? Do you uh, put a remain option on the ballot? And that would be you know completely um, unacceptable to Brexiters who said, well, you know, the people have already told us what they want. They want out. We can't then ignore the first vote. So do you put a deal or no deal option on the ballot? In which case, Parliament says, well, what if they vote no deal? Uh, it's always possible because you don't know how this is going to play out in campaign. So it's a tricky question. I think it's not impossible it will get to another referendum. But I don't really see the way through now, given the difficulty in figuring out what's on that ballot. Just give you about 20 seconds, Therese. Tony Blair coming out today talking about Brexit. He says it's the worst of both worlds. Does that help Theresa May at all? Tim, Tony Blair would get a standing ovation if he was on Capitol Hill right now. He is not loved in Britain. Um, it's There's actually a real, it's almost when he speaks out, it, it, um, it, it really hurts his cause. Uh, maybe that's mellowing a little bit. I mean, a former Prime Minister John Major has also been speaking out, but I'm not sure it helps that much. Thank you very much for being with us, as always. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Editor. Once again, the news is that Prime Minister Theresa May will be taking direct control of Brexit negotiations. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.